Keep your Bibles at John chapter 1, 4 through 13. That'll be our text for this morning. Uh, last Sunday, we began a new series, just in case you weren't with us, in the gospel according to John. We call it Believe, as you can see on the artwork. Uh, we picked that title because the book was written for the purpose of evangelism and belief and apologetics. That means arguing the key doctrines of the faith, and so that's why we went with that. In fact, the word shows up about 100 times in John's gospel, more, more times there than all, in all the other gospels combined. There's only about 50 in the synoptic gospels. So Believe is the title of our series as we walk through John. Last week I gave an introduction, a brief one at that, and described John's twofold purpose for writing this gospel, as I said, evangelism and apologetics. Um, Last Sunday, we focused primarily on the deity of Christ, the fact that Christ is God, um, and uh, that is an essential doctrine to the Christian faith, and it is one of the doctrines that uh, John uh, argues for throughout his, uh, throughout his gospel. It's one of the doctrines that he constantly makes his readers' audience, uh, audiences aware of, and that he's always affirming and building up that doctrine. And I would say that's, uh, reason being is that that's probably been one of the most attacked doctrines in the Christian faith, the fact that Christ is God. So many throughout the generations and centuries have argued against that, which basically destroys the gospel. So we talked about the deity of Christ in verses 1 through 3. In the next section, our section, verses 4 through 13, John identifies additional truths that point to the deity of Christ, and he illustrates and lays out for us some of the ways that, that people responded to Christ uh, during His incarnation. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Really what we'll be talking about is the life and light of Christ. So last week was deity this week is life and light. That is the, what is emphasized in this beautiful little section of Scripture. Let me just pray as we, uh, before we get to work. Lord, we thank you again for your providence and your resources, even air conditioning. We thank you for all that you've given to us, primarily Christ, which is the greatest gift ever given. In Him we have salvation and joy, endless blessings, adoption. There's just so much that comes in and through Christ. And so we are so thankful for the provision of your only begotten, Jesus. And Lord, as we uh, just study your scripture today, I pray that uh, we would come to know Christ more and more, that we would see how he is absolute deity, that he is God, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is eternal and uh, and all that that means, which is tough for us to get our minds around, but that He is also life and light, and that you would define what that means and describe what that means for us today through this incredible gospel that you have here. And so speak to us, Lord. May we humble ourselves and submit to you, and may we hear the message that you have for us today, and not just hear, but submit and surrender and live it out. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick it up at four. Are you there? If you're there, say I'm there. Just want to make sure you're awake. Yeah, make sure you're awake and, and ready to go, ready to study. You guys are good? 
All right, so let's pick it up at 4. Uh, John just continues to describe the Word with a capital W. We know that is a reference to Christ, the eternal God. In Him, that's the reference to the Word, who is Christ. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Interesting phrase here, an interesting set of words. Um, And life and light, one thing that I discovered is life and light are common themes in John's gospel, and they can refer to a couple of different things. Life can refer to uh, either physical life, it can refer to, and I'm talking about in John's gospel, it can refer to physical life, Uh, it can be a reference to that, it can be a reference to spiritual life, and I would say that uh, when you see it in John's gospel, the emphasis is on the spiritual. John's gospel is a spiritual gospel. It deals with spiritual things more so than chronology and things that Christ did. So the other gospels take care of that. It's not that they're not spiritual, but this one is highly spiritual. So the emphasis really in John's gospel is on spiritual, quote-unquote, life. And here it's interesting. It, it, It does mean that, but it's broader than that. It the reference here is, is actually to the fact that Christ has life in Himself. Um, and we call this aseity, uh, the doctrine of aseity. Aseity means self-existence. Okay, so when you think of Christ, think of one who is self-existent. Uh, and God alone, I would say, is self-existent. The universe, all of creation, the heavens and the earth are not self-existent. They have a starting point. They were created, and they're not even self-sustaining. I think some would argue that they are, but they are not. They have to be sustained. We are not, we do not have the aseity here. We, 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 if we don't eat, if we don't drink, if we don't breathe, if we don't have essential things to life, we perish. And so we are not self-existent. We are not self-sustaining. And so the reference here has to do with that, the fact that the Word, who was and who is God and all of that we've seen in 1 through 3, the fact that He is self-existent. He doesn't rely upon anything or anyone for life. And I would say with the exception of His incarnation as a human being, as a man, as a full man, He did have to rely on resource and things. But Eternally speaking, or if we're referencing the deity of Christ, He has the aseity. He is self-sustaining. He doesn't rely on anything to keep Him alive or to keep Him going. He doesn't need sunlight or any of those resources or things like that. John ties the divine attribute of aseity or life to Christ because he wants his audience, again, to know that Christ is God. That's what life here is a reference to, self-existence. And if God is the only self-existent one and Christ is God, see the logic? That's the logic of it. That's the logic that he's using. Uh, He's even included here a couple of examples of how Christ is life. Back in verse 3, how he's self-sustaining and even how he's the source back in Verse 3, he gave an example of how he is physical life. What did he say? He said, all things were made through him. So all things get their existence through the self-existent one, the one who possesses a seity. 
Makes sense, right? So there's an example of how Christ has this aseity. He's self-existent, how He's God. In the second half of verse 4, He gives the example of how Christ is, the Word is spiritual life. He puts it like this, and the life, the one who possesses aseity, the one who is self-existent, was the light of men. Light there is a reference to spiritual life. Let's kind of break that down a little bit more. What does John mean when he declares that Christ is the light of men? By this title, Christ is revealed as the one who knows God the Father and who makes Him known. So that's what John means here. Light is a universal image for illumination of the mind through understanding. You've heard people say, the light bulb came on when they understand something. Think in terms of that. Light can have to do with illuminating someone with knowledge, helping them, making them understand and possess knowledge of something. And that's what's kind of tied up here in its meaning. Uh, Before Christ came into the world, the world was in darkness, absolute spiritual darkness. The world did not know God, but Christ came and His light shone before men. The men had light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, is what Scripture teaches. The context for the significance of this image lies in the fact that God is pictured as light throughout the Old and New Testaments. Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? So God is referred to as light there. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain, speaking to God and of God, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see Yeah, in your light do we see light. So the light of God illuminates with knowledge. There's the reference. 1 John 1, 5, this is a New Testament reference, says this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Christ even referred to Himself as light in a number of places. Too many to list here. For us this morning, one reference would be John 8, 12. Again, it's a common theme in John, so we'll see it here over and over. Jesus said of Himself, I am what of the world? The light of the world. And He even adds this point, whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I love the way that that's referenced. You have light and life in the same sentence, just as you do Back here in this section of John, life and light can be synonymous terms just to describe spiritual life or illumination. So John's logic, as I already pointed to, is very simple and clear. God is life and light, and Christ is life and light. Therefore, Christ is God. Again, it's an apologetic for the deity of Christ, right? Verses 4 through 5 are also a summary of the incarnation, okay? The the incarnation, the coming of God um, to earth and becoming a man is wrapped up in these two verses as well. It's a reference there of Him coming as light. That's incarnation um, 
verbiage or wordage, if you want to put it that way. Christ, who is divine life and light, condescended. You see, He's always been life and light because He's always been God. He's eternal. So Christ, who is divine life and light, condescended and came to earth. It means He humbled Himself and stepped down. He came to earth. Why? To give men life and light. That's the meaning of these two verses in the broader sense. And then the question Uh, which I will ask and is answered in verse 5, is was his mission successful? He set out to come and to give life and light. Was he successful? Well, actually, you really don't have to look at verse 5 to answer the question. You can just look at the one who's speaking. You can just hear me. I am proof that his mission was successful and continues to be. If you are in Christ, you are proof that his mission was successful, but we'll get, don't take my testimony for it alone, right? You've got to back stuff up with Scripture. Verse 5, he puts it like this. John says, the light shines in the darkness. There's the idea of Christ the light shining in and throughout the darkened world, our world, which is darkened with sin and death and these things. The light shines in the darkness. Incarnation, he shined in the darkness. And what does it say? And the darkness has not overcome it. That's mission, ministry, success, right? Those who dwell in darkness, and this is a fact, we're thinking of his incarnation again, because John kind of bounces back and forth to when he was here, and then when he's coming, and back and forth, so you have to be careful as you read this, but those who dwell in darkness, thinking of Jesus in the flesh during the incarnation, those who dwell in darkness, those who he came to illuminate, to to shine forth the light of God and revelation of God onto, did everything they could to extinguish the light, but they were unable to overcome Him. Um, The world, uh, if you want to put it in a general sense, those who Jesus came to witness to and, and to show life and light to, they hated Him, they hated the light. Why? Because He exposed their wicked and sinful deeds. Um, Herod, you know, just think about ways that, that um, the darkness, those who represent the darkness, tried to extinguish the light. When the light was here with us, the light of the world was here with us, Herod tried to kill Christ when he was a baby. Christ and his family escaped to Egypt. Satan tried to disqualify Christ, right? Tempted him endlessly, especially in the wilderness, tried to destroy and dis- extinguish the light then. What did the light do, he rebuked and dismissed him. The religious leaders, the most religious people on the face of the earth at the time, they, they tried to silence the light, but the light kept preaching, didn't it? <laughs> didn't he? The Jews, Christ's own people, the nation of Israel, if you will, they tried to throw the light off a cliff, and he disappeared. He vanished. They were unable to extinguish the light. Then the Romans tried to bury the light, but the light rose from the grave three days later, didn't he? You see the ways that darkness has tried to extinguish the light? This goes on and on and on in many other facets and ways. Satan may have thought that he was, and he is really the prince of darkness, he may have thought that he was victorious at the cross in extinguishing the light. Finally, I've put an end to him. That's certainly what the religious leaders thought, as well as the Romans thought, okay, our problem's gone. 
But what actually happened was Satan, the reality of it is, is that he fulfilled God's plan and sealed his own doom. The light has continued to shine even after the light was killed on the cross. Nothing has been able to overcome the light. Today, the light shines forth whenever the Word of God is rightly preached. Rightly, I say, in true doctrine according to Scripture, not all this weird, goofy stuff people are doing today. Wherever the Word of God is rightly preached or rightly gossiped, meaning talked about, discussed, proclaimed even in simple conversation, the light shines forth when the preaching of the Word happens rightly, when discussions happen, conversations, discipleship. And you know what? The light shines forth whenever the people of God love one another rightly. And when they do good deeds, right? Let your light shine before men. The light shines forth when the people of the light engage in the things of the light. And even when the people of God, the people of light, don't respond rightly, the light still shines. Nothing can stamp out the light. Nothing can stop the light. Nothing can, can put out that light. So Christ is the light in spiritual categories. The one who knows the Father and who makes the Father known. Okay? He is the revelation of God. He reveals the Father. If you look upon Christ, you see the Father. And what the darkness was and is unable to overcome Him. Now let's take a quick look at the herald of the light. The one who not only announced the arrival of the light, but identified the light publicly. And when I say light, think of Christ. Verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about what? The light that all might believe through him. That's believing through Christ in John's testimony. Believing in Christ through John's testimony. He was not the light. Look at this distinction. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then he says, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Just a brief snapshot of the ministry of the herald of the light here, and we'll get into him a little bit more after, I think, the next section. John is not referring to himself. When I say John, I'm saying John the author. He is not referring to himself here. I said last week, whenever John refers to him, John is the author, is a John that is the author, the Apostle John, the brother of James, the two really closest people to Jesus, including Peter, he is the author of this gospel. And whenever he identifies himself in his gospel, he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. So he's not referring to himself, or he's not saying John as in me. He is referring to John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist that's in view here. The phrase, sent from God, confirms his role as herald. John the Baptist was actually sent from God. And if you think about the providence and plan of God in all of this, John, was, John the Baptist was given to elderly parents who were barren and could not have children. The fact that they were able to have a child and she was able to get pregnant and give birth is a miracle. That in and of itself shows that God opened up those possibilities and that reality so that God could send forth 
this herald. So sent from God confirms his role as herald. That's his, what he is. He is a herald. What does a herald do? He witnesses. He announces. It says here he came as a witness. What did he come to bear witness about? Obviously, it says the light, the light. Well, we already know who the light is. It's Christ. John the Baptist bore witness to the light in probably more ways than I have listed here, but I have three for you. These are ways that John the Baptist bore witness to the light, heralded the light, announced the light. Number one, he preached Christ. Christ is the light. He preached the light. At one point, he said to the priests and Levites who came out to address him to find out what he was doing, they were freaked out. He had a huge ministry. He was baptizing people. He was doing all this stuff. And they were like, what the heck is going on? We better go check out this new church plant over on the river. They go and they're standing before him and they ask him some questions and all that. And he says this to them, but among you stands one you do not know. They didn't even know Christ. They didn't even know the light. Even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John chapter 1, 26 through 27, he preached Christ. Who are you? Well, don't worry about who I am. I'm going to tell you about Christ. He's one. I'm, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Apparently, sandals back then tied. I don't have any of those versions of them. You slip them on. And he says, hey, don't worry about who I am. I'm going to tell you about the light. I'm here to talk about Him. You don't even know Him. He's coming after me. So he preached Christ in a number of ways. That's one expression of it, even though it's not explicit. But he preached Christ. He secondly pointed to Christ. When John saw Jesus coming toward him, he turned to those who were with him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. Can't you wait? We're going to get to get to all this stuff. So cool. He's pointing to Christ here, literally, and he's preaching Christ as the Lamb of God. He also said, I saw, listen to this testimony. I saw the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The reference is to the light, to Christ. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he's talking about the Father, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John says this. So he's talking about Christ. This is how the Father revealed the light to John so that he could identify and point to Christ. When you see him get baptized, you're going to see the Spirit come upon this person. You're going to be baptizing a lot of people, John, but there's going to be one in particular that something is going to happen. It's not going to happen with anyone else. That's how you'll know that he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he says this in his testimony here, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is John's testimony John 1, uh, John 1, 33 through 34. A lot of people think that because John was confused and frustrated and upset or whatever his problem was when he was in jail, he was facing death. A lot of people say, uh, because in that moment, he actually sent out some disciples to ask if Christ was actually the Messiah. A lot of people think that because he asked that question, sent them out to get that information, they think that he didn't understand who Christ is. I have borne witness that he is the Son of God. No, John knows exactly who Christ is. He knows who the light is. He knew when he was in the prison cell. 
But when you are about to be headed, be beheaded, don't you think that you might be a little frazzled and confused and wondering what's going on and saying to yourself, why me? What's going on here? It could be that John the Baptist had a little bit of the, the Jewish view. <laughs> that was his upbringing. That's who he is. That Christ is this messianic warrior, you know, and his primary purpose was to defeat the Romans and all that. Maybe he was thinking, if I'm about to be headed, this probably shouldn't be happening because he's the Messiah. He's come to conquer. And well, maybe he didn't understand that facet of it. But let me tell you something. He knew who the light was. He preached Christ. He pointed to Christ. Third, he prepared people for Christ. He prepared the people for Christ. He did this through baptism. His baptism was meant to wash and ready Israel for the Lord's appearance and ministry, for the arrival and ministry of the light. He said this, I baptize you with water. That's my job. But He, the light, Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1, verse 8. Those are three ways that the Baptist proclaimed, announced, heralded the light. He preached, he pointed, and he prepared. John the Baptist witnessed about the light. Why? So that all might believe through him. People believe in Christ through the testimony of of witnesses like John and like you if you proclaim the light, if you proclaim Christ. Salvation, then, is a matter of faith in God and in what God has said. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 make that clear. John the Baptist's ministry stirred up such excitement and energy and curiosity at the time. He attracted large crowds, and this is really, really interesting, but even long after his death, because he was beheaded, long after his death, groups of loyalists persisted into the second century. There was actually a little cult of John the Baptist followers that hung out all the way up into the second century, long after Christ. According to Acts chapter 19, Paul encountered one such group when he entered Ephesus. How would you like that? You enter a city and you're going there to preach the gospel and you meet some people who allegedly or apparently are Christian and they're loyalists to John the Baptist. That'd be really interesting. Well, I think I better help you understand what's going on here. He says this to them. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because that would certainly be a sign of true saving faith, right? The Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit is the primary sign that one is truly saved. And they answered, no, we have not even heard of a Holy Spirit. <laughs> huh? We love Jesus. We're Christians. Actually, I don't know if they did love Jesus. We're Christians. You have the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? Okay, so that would be like within the top 10 doctrines, that'd be one of them. They did not know. They, they said, I, I, I don't know. We, we don't know what the Holy Spirit is. He replied, then, what baptism did you receive? Christians are, were baptized back then. There was no questioning that at all. And so he goes, Paul goes right to that question. Well, how were you baptized? Were you baptized in the name of Jesus? What did you receive? And they said, well, we received John the Baptist's baptism. And at that point, Paul knew what the symptoms and problem was. He saw the symptoms. He knew what the problem was. And he said, John's baptism, he draws a distinction here. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Listen to this. This is exactly what the Scripture says. He says, 
John the Baptist told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is, in Jesus. What what did John the Baptist do? He preached Christ, he pointed to Christ, he prepared people for Christ. And then it says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they had the Savior right now. In that moment, they realized, okay, John the Baptist is not our light. He is not our Savior. It is Jesus, the one in whom John the Baptist pointed to. So Paul clears that up for them. Now, John the Apostle, our author, was aware of these pockets of loyalists. They were around when he wrote this gospel in, I don't know, between 80 and 90 A.D., 50 years after the ministry of Christ. He was aware of what was going on. He knew about these pockets of loyalists. Uh, Paul's writings were out by then. The other gospels had been written by then. He knew what was going on. And he wanted to make sure that his audience, his readers, his hearers did not confuse the herald with the source like some of the Ephesians did and others did. He clarified in verse 8, speaking of John the Baptist, right? Because he's been talking about the light. What does he say again in verse 8? He says, he was not the light. Okay, if that's who you've put your trust and faith in, you need to know that he is not the light, capital L. He's not him. He came to bear witness about him, about the light. This is why he seeks to clarify here. John the Baptist was a a great witness to the light, and you could even call him the light in a sense, because Jesus said, you are the light. He refers to us as that, but what he means is that we shine the gospel and we partake of and participate in that light and in that revelation. So was John the Baptist the light in a sense? Yes, every Christian is, but he wasn't the light, or as John puts it in the next line, the true light. John the Baptist was a great witness to the light. He was even the light with a lowercase l, but he is not the light. And there have been many great witnesses to the light throughout history. Obviously, the apostles, and probably the one whom I admire the most, the apostle Paul, Uh, Even some gals in there. You've got Lydia of Thyatira. Man, she was phenomenal with the gospel. You've got later on, you've got Luther and Calvin and Whitfield and Jones, Sproul, MacArthur. The list goes on and on and on. Some are even around today, Sproul and MacArthur. But there is only one light of the world, and he is Christ. This is something that we have to remind ourselves all the time because we have this propensity to exalt not only ourselves up, but others. Boy, I tell you, I just go to that church because of that pastor. I've never heard anyone say that about RHC. That's a dagger blow and a blessing. It's a dagger blow into my ego. And I've never had anyone say anything like that. I love that. But I tell you what. Paul addressed this in some of the churches that he planted where, well, I'm the, I follow this guy and I follow that guy. Boy, we have this ability as fallen and even regenerate sinners, you know, sons of God. We have this ability to exalt the preachers and, and the elders and, and the, the guys that go around and circuit preach and, and Mother Teresa and, you know, whoever. We have this ability to do that and, and we can get kind of lost in that and we become about that man, that woman 
We need to know that there have been some great light bulbs, but there is only one true light, and He is Christ. And any bit of work we do just represents and manifests a small bit of the light. So keep that in mind. So John the Baptist was simply the herald that bore witness to the fact that the light or the true light, as it says, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, that's a really interesting phrase there. What is meant by gives light to everyone? What does he mean? What does that mean? Does it mean that when Christ came, he illuminated the world, enabling it to accept or reject him, as the Wesleyans and Methodists propose? Was this the so-called act of God's prevenient grace? Prevenient means that He came in power and enabled every man, woman, and child to be able to either accept or reject Christ, that this was God's way of overcoming human depravity and the fall and universalizing the salvific work of Christ and giving everyone the ability to accept or reject. Is that what is meant by this verse, because the proponents of that theology use this verse to support their theology. Is that what it is? No, it doesn't have anything to do with that. You've got to do some, some gymnastics to get it to mean that. It does not have to do with spiritual illumination. There is an illumination that occurs, but it's not, it doesn't take place in here through what we're reading here, and there's a difference. It has to do with God shining light on men, not in men. There's actually a difference. There's actually a difference. God has shown light and revealed Himself to mankind through two primary ways. First, general revelation is what we call it. We have the example of creation. Okay, so through creation, God shows or he shines his light on creation, revealing his um, invisible attributes, his power, his existence. Uh, Psalm 19, 1 through 4, Romans 1, 19 through 20. So that is a general way that God shines light on his creation and reveals himself. We also have in general revelation the example of conscience, Romans 2, 15. I don't know if you knew this or not, but God has made himself perfectly known to his creatures, more specifically, to humanity through conscience. He has written his laws on the hearts of every man, woman, and child. But, but wait a minute, Pastor Phil. God hasn't revealed himself to creation. I just told you two ways that he's done that through the general revelation. When you look at Half Dome, thank God. When you look at the ocean, thank God. That Psalm passage, 19, it says everything in all creation in the universe shouts, I am God, I am here, I have created all of this. Even more intricately and more specifically is what God has done on the conscience of men. That He has inscripted and engraved His laws onto the heart. This is why the person who does not know Christ and who has never heard Christ can know the difference between right and wrong. Now, it is true that you can sear your conscience through sin. And it becomes more difficult to discern the difference between right and wrong. But it's there nonetheless. And then you have special revelation. 
We have the examples of signs and wonders. That would be miracles. John 20, verse 31. What did he say? I recorded these things that you might believe. The things that he's referring to are the miracles that Christ performed. You have the example of Scripture, right? Scripture is special revelation. That is God speaking specifically to his creatures, to humanity. Psalm 19, 7 through 8, 2 Tim 3, 16. And the biggest special revelation example of all that we have is Christ himself. Christ, Christ is special revelation. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Read that, it's amazing. It says, long ago God spoke to us through prophets and all that, but today he speaks to us through Christ. Christ is special revelation. That's what John 1, 9 means. Here's the deal. God has shown light. He has shown his light. He has revealed himself through creation, through conscience, through signs and wonders, through scripture, and through Christ. That is what God has done. Because he has revealed himself, that he has shown light in this way. No one will be able to say that God did not reveal himself, that God did not expose sin, that God did not show the Savior and point to the Savior. And that means, Romans 1.20, they are without excuse. Based on special and general revelation, no man has an excuse. No one can say that God didn't reveal himself to me. It's unfair. He's unjust. You want to know? Why God is just? Because he has done all of this revelatory work through expressions of light, and man says, I don't care. I don't want it. I hate you. Now, he goes on to describe literally how people responded to the light in verses 10 through 13. There are two categories of people mentioned here. One is positive and the other is negative. Number one, the rejectors. Verses 10 through 11, John gives two examples of rejectors. A, Gentiles in verse 10. He was in the world, world referencing the whole world basically, but the emphasis is on Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and the world was made through him. Look, he was not only in the world, but the whole world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Reference to Gentiles rejecting him. Okay, but I have to clarify. It says the world did not know him. Does that not sound like, well, that's ignorance? They just weren't aware of him. What did I just tell you about general and special revelation? (laughs) This is not a matter of ignorance, and it never will be. It will never be a matter of ignorance. It will be a matter of ignorance in a sense, but not in the the sense that, that they weren't made aware of his presence in law. No man can claim ignorance because God has shown light and made himself known. We covered this. So, did not know him means did not want to know him, did not care to know him, did not desire to know him, didn't want to have anything to do with him. It's not a matter of I didn't know, it's a matter of I don't want to know. This is willful and blatant rejection by Gentiles. It is rebellion. It is, as Sproul calls it, 
divine or cosmic treason. Now, as shocking and tragic as the world's rejection of Christ is, John turned to an even greater tragedy. B, the Jews. Verse 11, that's the reference. He came to his own. And that's, that's a reference to Israel. And his own people did not receive him. The Jews did not receive the light. Why? Is it because they didn't know the light? You know, and they just, they, they couldn't see him? No. They didn't want to receive him. They didn't want the light. Why? They were stiff-necked. They always have been. They actually wanted deliverance from the Romans, but they didn't want the deliverance from sin that Jesus talked about. Save us from the Romans. What are you talking about? We need to be saved from our sin. Get out of here. We're good. We're the chosen people. In pride. You know, they had a long, 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 they still have it, but they had a long history of rejecting and killing their prophets. And they treated Christ no differently, even handing him over to the Romans to be crucified and killed. So, the light comes into the world, you have a negative response to him. You have rejection by both Gentiles and Jews. At this point, as I'm writing my sermon, I'm, say, I'm saying to myself, why? Why did they reject him? Why would they reject the light? Well, John talks about this in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. We'll get to this in four years. The light, listen to what he says, the light, speaking of Christ, has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why did people reject the light when the light came into the world? Why were there rejectors? Because they hate the light, because they love darkness, they love sin, they love the things of the darkness. Listen to what else he says here in verse 20 there of John chapter 3. I love John chapter 3. I can't wait to get to it. Let's just fast forward. Well, let's not because we're getting it now. He says, for everyone who does wicked things, who lives in sin, hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? He said, I mean, he puts a, it out here. You almost think that he's asking why and he gives the answer. It's kind of a hypothetical here. He's, Lest his work should be exposed. Natural man has always responded to God's light in this way. Always. And he always will. He always will. Why? Because he loves darkness. Because he loves sin. Because he loves wicked things. And because he does not want his wicked deeds, his sinful acts, exposed. This is why he rejects the light. This is why... They rejected Christ 2,000 years ago. I'll tell you, it's going to sound gross, but men are like cockroaches. We are. Sinners are like cockroaches. That sounds gross. But have you ever noticed what happens when there's, you flip on a light and you see a flash because there's a roach on the floor trying to hide? And you're like, Clark, we need you. What happens when you flip on the light? Cockroaches go, ah, get out of here. That's exactly what men do when the light shines upon them. They do the same thing. They scurry around looking for a place to hide, don't they? I certainly did that. 
the whole time I wasn't saved. But you know what? Something else is happening today. It's always been there, but I think it's because of social media and stuff. We have access to it more. But there is almost this strange phenomenon. I'm acting like I've never even thought this was possible. It's always been this way. But it's not a matter of hiding and scurrying and hiding sin. That's not what people in our culture do today. They flaunt it. They celebrate it. They redefine what it is, don't they? They absolutely do. They absolutely do. People in our culture have stopped trying to hide their sin. Well, that's good. It's being brought out into the light. (laughs) I just prefer that some of you just keep that hidden. In the name of Jesus, I do not want to see a man on my Facebook feed in women's clothing. It's okay. Just do that in your house. Well, it's not okay. But you know what I mean. But people today are flaunting it. Worse than that, they're redefining what it is. Right? Isn't that what people are trying to do with sex and gender today? Is that not what they are attempting to do? They figure if they can redefine what sex and gender, which are is synonymous for the same thing, male and female... They figure if they can take those terms and, and redefine them and, and make them something else, right? Which is basically the goal of modern day sociology. Anyone in here taking a sociology class? Boy, when they get to the gender stuff, they get that wrong. Boy, do they ever. And if you, ch- and you know, they don't give you. I was looking at, at, at a test recently for that. They don't give you the correct option. They give you a multiple choice of four and they're all wrong. They force you to choose a wrong answer or get a bad mark. I'll tell you what, it's a good thing I'm not back in college. Not only would I get a bad mark, but I would go up in front and say, teacher, I just need the floor for a minute. This is bull. F, I'll take a thousand Fs. Give them to me. I got them all through high school. This doesn't change anything. Primarily because I was over there getting materials from that place next door and smoking the stuff you put in it. Wasn't focused on the right things back then. I have no idea why I said that. Oh, they're redefining the terms today. Well, gender is, sex is your sex. And when we think of sex, don't think of the other sex. Think of male or female. But what they say it is, is it's what you prefer sexually. What is gender? Gender is how you feel. Well, I feel like a woman. That's your gender. Pardon me, I've never felt like a woman. I felt less of a man at times because of stupid decisions. It's ridiculous. That's it. That's the redefinition of the things. Well, sex is what you prefer sexually, and gender is how you feel. I feel like a lizard today. You're a lizard. It's really gotten that crazy, and it's going to get worse. It is. It's, it's getting insane. It's getting insane. I read a report about a woman who married her German shepherd in Germany. Figures they'd have German shepherds in Germany. Married her dog, Literally. I knew that when the Supreme Court passed that law, they made a homosexual marriage law, that that would open up the spillway for not just that, but all sorts of insanity. Because now the pedophiles are in uproar and they should be able to do their thing. And the, Mormon, the Mormons are screaming for multiple wives and it's not fair. It's just unreal what's going on. Do we understand what's actually playing out here? Do we understand what is at the heart of all of this? This is about sinners justifying their sin. That's all this is. That's all that it is. If, if, if we can get the public to go along with my preferred sin, 
that makes me feel better about my sin. That's what people are doing. In fact, there, there is no distance, no level to which a sinner will go to justify a sin. Even murder is not off the table. Jesus is a prime example of that. Abel is an example of that. There are dozens and dozens. So this, this is a matter of redefining the terms so that we can justify our behavior, so that we can do our best to avoid the light and remain in darkness. And we want to do that in such a way to where nobody resists us or challenges us or questions us. And if you do, you will pay the price. That's what's going on. That's exactly what's going on. Now let's take a look at the second category. So that's the rejectors. And, and that is a form of rejection. Redefining the terms so we can live out these sins, that is a form of rejection. i tell you what, I don't think there's a person in the whole world. I, don't think, I, I have a hard time believing that there's any sexual sinners out there or anyone else who commits sin that, that, doesn't, that really believes deep down inside that they're right about what they're doing. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe the imprint of God on their hearts in terms of the law and on their, on their conscience. I don't think it permits it. I just think that deep down inside, people know that they're wrong. They know that what they're doing is wrong. They do because I think that the fact that God's written His laws on their hearts, even though they've engaged and engaged and engaged in sinful activity, there's still something there that says you're wrong. You know it. Yeah, I know it, but I'm going to make it right. That's what's happening. So that's the rejectors. Number two, you have the positive. You have the receivers. I didn't want to leave you with the rejectors. That's hard. Let's look at the receivers, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, talking about the light, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What a great line. During his incarnation, many, many people received the light. They received Christ. What does it mean to receive him? Well, it involves more than mere intellectual acknowledgement of his claims. In Greek, receive means to take hold of, to cling to, to grab onto. John described what it means to take hold of him in the next line. Believed in his name. Okay? So to receive means to take hold of, by faith, to believe in His name, to believe in Jesus. That's what it means. It means to believe in His person and work. It means to trust in Him alone for salvation. And the Gospels record the belief of Peter, Matthew 16, 16, Nathaniel, John 1, 48-50, the disciples, Matthew 14, 33, a Samaritan woman of all the people you would think, a Samaritan woman, right, the one he met at the well, John 4, 28-29, can't wait to get to that story, and not just her in that region, others from her village, John 4, 42, a blind man whom Jesus healed, John 9, 33-38, the woman who visited the, the women who visited the empty tomb, Matthew 28, 9, the former skeptic, doubting Thomas. Remember Thomas? I don't believe you. Oh, Lord, you are him. Look at the holes. John 20, verse 28. They're all, the Gospels show us there are a lot of people that received him. Lots. Acts 1, 14 tells us uh, that, uh, uh, what does it say? 
his own brothers, his half-brothers, came to believe in him after his resurrection, James, Jude. And they're authors of books in the, in the Bible. And it says he gave those who believed in him the right to become children of God. I like how D.A. Carson put it, and I'm so thankful that Dan loaned me his incredible commentary, which is just, uh, it's got to be one of the best ones out there. It's got so much information, and I'm just like, I love how he puts it. Listen to this. He says, these people, he's speaking to those who received him, these people enjoy the privilege of becoming the covenant people of God, a privilege lost by Messiah's own people, those related to him by nature and by the grace of the old covenant. Wow. Now, he goes on to describe their actual conversion in verse 13. This is the conversion that takes place here. What, is, what does John the author tell us? He says, they were born. They were born. This is a reference to the new birth that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 3. I don't know if you know the story, but if you do, you remember how he told Nicodemus, we call it Nick at night, he told Nicodemus that a person must experience a new birth, that he must be what, quote-unquote, born again in order to enter the kingdom. That is what John has in mind here. Were born means new birth, born again. These people were born again. In John 3, verse 5, Jesus also told Nicodemus that this new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And and John says something similar here, right? He says they were born, what? Not of blood. So this means that it's not some kind of a birthright that comes through your lineage. He says, nor of the will of the flesh. It isn't a, uh, the salvation and being born isn't a product of the flesh. It's not like giving birth to a child or anything like that. And he says, nor of the will of man. This is not men using their will to incline themselves to God somehow so that they can be born again. doesn't have anything to do with that. It's a work of the Spirit. He clarifies in John 3. And he says here, but of God. It's a birth, but of God. It's a new birth, born again of God. That is it. That is what salvation is. It is a new birth. He says those who received Him, they experienced a new birth. And it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with them in terms of what they're deciding, what they're not deciding and all that. It's an act of God is what He's saying. That's what He's making clear. And He will make this so clear in John 3. Uh, MacArthur wrote... Because all bear the guilt of unbelief and rejection, the phrase, but of God, means salvation, that is, receiving and believing in Christ, is impossible for any sinner. God must grant the power supernaturally, and with it, the divine life and light, to the lifeless, darkened sinner. That's amazing. This is is election here. This is being chosen. This is regeneration. This is all the work of God represented here. This is the first mention of belief. It's the first mention of salvation in his gospel. And I love how John points to and emphasizes God's sovereign grace right off the bat. Right off the bat. He tethers the receiving and believing to the sovereign grace of God. And I'll tell you what, this doctrine is absent in many churches today. They emphasize man's will and man's ability and man's choice. 
This is an illusion based on humanism. Man is in darkness, and unless God intervenes and shines His divine light, not just upon him, but into his soul through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, that man will remain in darkness. He will remain, as it says in Ephesians, dead in his trespasses and sin. And here's the thing. If you have received Christ, if you believe in Him, God did this for you. Your faith is an example of God's sovereign grace. That faith wasn't in you until God put it in you. That repentance that you're experiencing on a daily basis, that's God's gift working through you. It ain't you. It's not just you. It's the work of God. If you believe in Him, if you've received Him, as those did back when, during the Incarnation, God did this for you. God illuminated you with his, with his marvelous light. The question that I'd like to wrap up with is, how should we respond to Him and to His wonderful gift of grace and mercy, to the miracle that He has performed for us? How should we respond to Him? It's simple. We should walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.8. How do we walk as children of light? Ephesians 5.10-20. through 20. Children of light find out what pleases the Lord, and they do it. You find that in Scripture. Children of light have nothing to do, listen to me carefully, children of light have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. You think about that for a moment. They're not in the business of engaging in these things. They are in the business of exposing them. What are the fruitless deeds of darkness? Anything and everything opposed to the glory and will of God and to your new nature, if you have it. Children of light are careful in how they live, not as unwise, but as wise. Children of light make the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. Children of light do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Let me put that in Phil's translation. Children of light do not get addicted. They do their very best to stay away from substance, porn, any of these things. In in fact, rather than engaging in those things and being tripped up in them, they expose them. Children of light minister to one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I love how Kelly intervened. I actually was flipping the lights back on over there. I was like, whoa! Didn't make much difference in here. The room's very bright. But I love how he chose in that moment, being led by the Spirit, to continue to minister to the children of light through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's sing this again. Children of light sing and make music from their hearts to the Lord. Children of light give Thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. These are the things the children of light do. If we have received the light, believed on Him, on Christ, we should be walking as children of light, doing these things. Maybe the Spirit of God is exposing areas in your life right now that do not line up with your calling as a child of light. Repent 
confess them to the Lord. Receive His mercy and grace. Get back in step with His will. You will pretty much spend your entire life going back and forth. It's hard. But make sure that you allow the light in this moment to expose and to reveal and then bring these things before your heavenly Father through the Spirit in the name of Christ. Receive His mercy and grace. You know, the light exposes sin. It's a good thing for the people of God. And we're not supposed to, once it's exposed, we're not supposed to run. We're not supposed to hide. We're not supposed to cockroach. We're not supposed to cockroach. We're supposed to confess. Confess. Bring these things before the Lord. You can handle it. Maybe the Spirit of God is exposing your rejection and unbelief, the fact that you have never surrendered and submitted to the light. Oh, dear friend, stop running. Stop hiding. Stop justifying. And take hold of Christ now. Take hold of Him now. Believe in His name. Believe in the totality of who He is. He is God. He is our Messiah. He is our Savior. Believe in His name. Believing in His name believe, means to believe in, in who He is and in what He has accomplished for, for people like us. Maybe He's calling you out of this darkness for the first time. Maybe He's calling you out of this darkness for the first time, that He is not just shining His light on, on the outside but on the inside. And through that, the revelation of God is, believe on my Son and you shall be saved. Believe in Him. Believe on His name. Become a child of God. Let me tell you something right now. Among sinners like us, there is no higher identity or title than child of God. What do you think people are doing today, friends? They're trying to carve out for themselves an identity. Evolution tells us we came from Blob on the ground or monkeys? Boy, that's not much of an identity. There's no identity wrapped up in that but one of hopelessness. The philosophies of the world, they, they can't explain it. They, they can give us an identity, but it's pathetic. It's terrible. It's not satisfying. The highest, the greatest identity that we can have is child of God. And that is precisely what you become at the point of your surrender. You're justified. You're adopted. Being his son or daughter is greater than being anything in everything in this life and on this earth. Amen?